Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And a little bit of business before we get into today's episode. Uh... We normally, in the course of any given year, would probably tour a little bit. A little. (laughs) Maybe some live shows. (laughs) Maybe some one-off live shows that were asked to go to places and do them, or we would have our own tour. Uh, And one of the best parts about those for us is getting to do Q&A with the audience. And we really miss it. So uh, we thought it might be a good thing to do our own little Q&A that is a non-touring version, uh, in which... You, our listeners, can send us questions, uh, and then we will pull as many as we can and make an episode out of us answering those questions. So if you would like to submit a question for a Q&A episode, you need to do that by June 12th, 2020. Uh, and you can do that by sending it to historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And that way uh, we will get it and hopefully read it and then answer it and uh It could be your burning questions about previous episodes, how we record, something totally unrelated um, that you've either thought about or wondered about or, uh, you know, you can ask us questions about ourselves. Depending on how personal they get, we may or may not include them. Uh, But please do send those to us. Again, that is historypodcast at iheartradio.com, and we need them by June 12th. So we can't wait to hear from you. Now, on to today's episode. Uh, In 1945, John Steinbeck published a novel that became very popular called Cannery Row, which is kind of a slice-of-life look at a small community in Monterey, California. And Steinbeck had actually been born in nearby Salinas and then lived in Monterey for more than a decade from 1930 to 1941 with his first wife. And that novel is really a very loving look at the place and the people who lived there. Uh, And he wrote it, though, after he had moved away. But Cannery Row is, of course, a real place, although it was not called that until after the novel was written. It was just Ocean View Avenue. Before that, it was just wagon tracks. And before that, it was occupied by indigenous peoples and did not have roads, uh, though probably paths. Today, Cannery Row is a really busy tourism center. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. But I thought it would be interesting to look at some of its history from before it was home to any white settlers through the heyday of its time as a fishing and canning center, and then how it evolved to be the place it is today. So, uh, true story on the genesis of this episode, I have been really, really quite comfortable and content being home all the time through this pandemic isolation. I I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones that I, it has not troubled me. I mean, uh, the pandemic itself is stressful, but in terms of just having to stay in my home for a couple months, that has not been a problem at all. Uh, But I'm missing travel a little bit. It started to express itself to me by just having dreams about trips I have been on. They're not fantastical. They're literally like watching movies of trips I have been on. Uh, And one of them uh, is a trip that I have been waxing a little rhapsodic about, which was a day last year that I just spent driving out to and hanging out in Monterey with one of my dearest friends. Uh, So I thought this would be a nice way to revisit that. And I hope that we can all go wherever our hearts desire soon. Uh, And all of us with travel bugs or anyone who is getting a little tired of being in the house We'll soon be past that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I very similarly have been simultaneously feeling very lucky and uh, missing getting out and doing some stuff. So a lot of sources that look at the history of Cannery Row start 
with the settlement of a Chinese fishing village in the 1850s. Obviously, that's an important part of the story, but it also leaves out a really significant precursor to that, which is the Ohlone people. The Ohlone had lived along what is now the California coast from Big Sur north to San Francisco. For context, Monterey is about 30 miles north of Big Sur. And the Ohlone were not all grouped together under one umbrella for a long time. In the mid-1700s, when they become part of the record for European settlers, there were approximately 10,000 Ohlone people living on the coast, spread across 40 to 50 different tribal communities. The languages among these communities and tribes, which you will sometimes see called tribelets, varied. And again, they did not consider themselves one people, although it's certainly possible they may have stemmed from the same group at one point thousands of years back. And they mixed socially, including intermarrying among the various groups. The subgroup that is most closely linked to the immediate Monterey area was the Rumsen or Rumsian, which you'll also see it spelled as. Uh, they were most local to the area we're talking about today. The Ohlone lived through hunting and gathering with their own art and culture in the Bay Area for more than 10,000 years, up until the arrival of Europeans that we mentioned just a moment ago. As early as 1602, the people native to the region probably had some kind of contact with Spanish explorers. That was the year that Sebastian de Vizacaino visited the Bay Area looking for a place to harbor ships. Spanish explorers Don Gaspar de Portola and Father Juan Crespi were some of the first to visit the area with the intent of actually staying there, but that didn't happen until much later in the late 1760s. Accounts written by the Spanish in those early years mention the numerous established villages of the Ohlone, who, although they referred to them as costeños initially, literally just meaning coastal people, um, that evolved into Costanoan. Yeah, you will still see sometimes in older scholarly articles the Ohlone referred to as Costanoans. And the Spanish did indeed set up mission settlements as planned. There were seven built between the years of 1770 and 1797. Dolores, San Carlos, Soledad, San Juan Bautista, Santa Cruz, Santa Clara, and San Jose. And as the missions moved in, the Ohlone worked with the settlers. Often they would move their huts closer to the nearest mission, and they started integrating into those mission communities as they were evangelized to leave their tribal ways behind and convert to Christianity. This proved disastrous. By 1850, the Ohlone population was deeply depleted, diseases contracted from the European settlers, high infant mortality rates, and genocide under the guise of protecting white settlers had claimed the lives of most of the indigenous peoples of the coast. There are contemporary organizations that have established groups of Ohlone descendants and traced back through those mission records. They've regained some of their tribal culture, including reviving some of those languages that had been spoken by the tribelets that are now grouped under the Ohlone umbrella. Additionally, there are efforts being made to uh, get federal recognition from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and an ongoing effort in California to have an Ohlone cultural center established on land that was taken from them previously. So when Chinese immigrants settled in the area, just as California was beginning its statehood, there was not much left of the Ohlone to document. And while the Chinese settlers in the Bay Area and specifically Monterey were essential in establishing what would become the area's identity, their origins there are less than spectacularly documented. For one, there's a lack of clarity about where specifically they first started living and fishing. 
The first camp might have been in a place that was a few miles south of the now-famous waterfront strip of Cannery Row at Point Lobos and on Carmel Bay. Coming from a fishing culture, these settlers from Asia are believed to have quickly realized just how ample their potential take was there on the Pacific coast of North America and to have quickly set up additional camps at Pescadero and Point Alones. If you look up Point Alones on a modern map, you'll see it's right there in the midst of the tourist district that has grown around Cannery Row. Yeah, that really is kind of a central point of all of this. And by the mid-1850s, so just a few years after they started fishing there, hundreds of Chinese fishermen were turning the area into a commercial fishing enterprise. Initially, they would dive and gather abalone, and then they moved on to other catches and different fishing when competition from other fishermen who realized that these uh, Chinese fishermen were really onto something potentially um, fiscally beneficial kind of made it a little more difficult for the Chinese to continue to do so. So they started fishing for yellowtail, flounder, cod, and sardines, among others. In the next 50 years, fishing would become a massive industry as these settlements grew into villages and ultimately into larger and more established communities that were part of the growing Monterey area. In the early 1900s, daily catches ranging from an estimated 200 to 800 pounds were coming into Monterey through the Chinese fisheries. And some of the fish was dried and then sent back to China. Uh, I read one thing that this was kind of a trick about salt import, that they would dry the fish, pack it in salt, and send it back, and they could get around some of the taxation of salt that was moving. Uh, And then the junks that would arrive in Monterey Bay would offload goods for importers there, and those would eventually move to San Francisco, and then they would reload with all of this dried fish to take back home. And some of the fish was also sold to markets in San Francisco. The main fishing village that developed eventually became known as China Point. That's kind of centered around the Point Alones area. And it was running a busy and successful business. But of course, that level of success from an immigrant community led to conflict with other groups because of racism. We've talked so many times about laws that were explicitly anti-Chinese in the 19th century, including the Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbid immigration from China, But even for people who were living entirely with the law and who had contributed to the economic success of the area, there was still plenty of racism to deal with. Things were relatively peaceful for most of the 1800s, but in the early 1900s, the Chinese population in Monterey, many of whom had been born in California at that point and were U.S. citizens, faced growing adversity when it came to their neighbors. And we're going to get into the complaints that started about the Chinese fishing village after we first take a break and hear from our sponsors. In 1904, complaints about the smell of Pointalones and its drying fish escalated rapidly. That land that the Chinese fishing village was on was leased to the village by the Pacific Improvement Company. We're going to come back to this entity in a bit. And the white community started pressuring the leaseholder to evict the Chinese fishermen over this issue of the smell. A notice was issued by the landlord that all leases would be canceled, And leaders from the fishing village then approached the Pacific Improvement Company, and they wanted to negotiate and find a mutually beneficial solution. And this started to take shape as a search for another location within the PIC's property holdings that would meet the needs of the fishermen. 
But as this potential move was being worked out, another event that we've talked about before on the show took place, and that was the San Francisco earthquake and fires of April 1906. We mentioned in that episode that some of San Francisco's Chinatown residents moved to other Chinese communities as refugees, and this was the case in Monterey. About 150 people moved into the village at Point Alones, and for about a month, the landlord backed off of this whole eviction plan. Discussion resumed in May, this time of a possible move to attractive land at Point Pinos. Yeah, to be clear, I don't think they were like, oh, we're in dire times, we'll be nice. They were busy with their own property damage when they kind of stopped pestering them about eviction. Uh, But then, as these negotiations that restarted uh, were kind of moving along, but they did not get very far because a fire started in a barn that was part of the Chinese fishing village. And that fire ultimately consumed most of the buildings surrounding it and basically the majority of the village. Whether or not this was a case of arson remains unknown. Uh, you can still find discussion of it. Uh, but everybody pretty agrees we'll never know the truth. White spectators watched this blaze as the village's residents ran in and out, trying to save everything they could. But a lot of times, things that were saved were then looted as soon as the owner ran back to try to rescue more of their belongings. There are accounts that some of the spectators openly cheered as they watched. Only a few buildings were left standing afterward. So if you heard that episode on the 1906 fires in San Francisco, you may recall that many of the residents of San Francisco's Chinatown refused to leave, even though the city was hoping that would be an excuse to push them out. And ultimately, they rebuilt. A similar thing took place in Monterey after the fire there. While only a few buildings were left, those same leaders who had begun negotiating with their landlord led a movement of people who refused to be pushed out of a community that they had built. They staged a sit-in, which led to a negotiation of a new lease, this time at Maccabee Beach, just south of Point Alones. While some of the village community stayed and tried to make a go of it in their new location, most dispersed to other areas. And ultimately, once squid drying was banned inside city limits, the Maccabee site was abandoned as well. Yeah, for clarity, if you know the area... Um, This is not, these two places are not far from each other. Like, you can walk it in five to ten minutes. It's all pretty close together, uh, which is just kind of geographically interesting to me. Uh, For three years in the early 2000s, there was a large-scale archaeological dig and analysis that was conducted at Point Alones, and it turned up some of the only material remains of the once-robust Chinese-American fishing community there. In 1874, a group called the Patrons of Husbandry, which was a farmer's coalition more commonly called the Grangers, built the region's first steam-powered railroad that ran from Salinas Valley to Monterey. The Grangers' entire point of existence was to fight monopolistic grain transport. So in establishing a line that could take the grain from Salinas to ships in Monterey, they were trying to break this monopoly that had been held by the Southern Pacific Railroad. Southern Pacific was costing the local industry as much as $200,000 a year in freight costs. And while this did force competition, which resulted in Southern Pacific extending its own lines a little bit further and lowering freight charges, it was ultimately not a successful venture. Storms caused bridge collapses on the line several different times in the first few years, and an engine house burned down in 1877. 
and then a bitter challenge over executive leadership that ended up becoming a state Supreme Court case further destabilized the company. In fall 1879, Southern Pacific bought the Monterey and Salinas Valley Railroad, so it ended up, in the end, only adding to Southern Pacific's monopoly in the area. But the bigger impact, at least for Monterey, was that this suddenly made the Oceanside town completely accessible to additional large-scale business and also to tourism. And that meant an entirely new revenue stream for the community. Charles Crocker, an executive with the railroad, immediately saw the financial potential of making Monterey a tourist destination. So using Southern Pacific's power, influence, and property, he had a hotel built with incredible speed to accommodate what he believed would be a huge moneymaker. That was the Hotel Del Monte. Architect Arthur Brown Sr., who worked for the railroad, designed the sprawling Victorian resort, and it was a big, showy place. You can see pictures of it. It's quite beautiful. And while it was sometimes called Crocker's Folly during construction by disbelievers who thought that no one would pay to visit a fishing town, the hotel was in fact a massive success. Hotel Del Monte opened on June 3rd, 1880, and within a month it had turned a profit of $11,300. In the first month and a half it was open, more than 3,000 booking requests had had to be turned away because the luxury hotel just couldn't accommodate all the people who wanted to visit. Yeah, they had, uh, I think, a little over 100 rooms, and it was just, like, never-ending calls. Can we book a stay? No. In fact, no. Uh, The resort was on a 7,000-acre parcel of land, and it had its own botanical garden as well as numerous other amenities. In September 1880, President Rutherford B. Hayes stayed at the Hotel Del Monte, and he praised his visit as, quote, one of the most agreeable episodes of our lives. Because of the reputation the hotel enjoyed immediately upon opening, it was a huge draw for the growing leisure set. Among its many draws was an outing along the, quote, 18-mile drive. This was a scenic loop around Pacific Grove and the surrounding area that started and ended at the hotel. It was a very carefully planned pleasure outing, a way to get wealthy visitors into carriages and touring the area, The hope was that seeing all of the coastline and the natural beauty of the land would encourage them to invest in Crocker's dream of a high-end developed community. The name was eventually amended to 17 Mile Drive to more accurately reflect the route after it had been altered. It does still exist today, although some of it goes through gated communities. And the hotel had a fire in 1887 that caused significant damage, but it was rebuilt again very quickly in the same style, and it continued its prosperity. In 1897, Thomas Edison Incorporated made a movie of several buggies of tourists passing by the front of the hotel. You can find that footage on the Library of Congress's site, and it is quite sweet. It's very cute to watch them driving by and waving and looking very, very happy in front of this Victorian driveway. In 1919, the property and 18,000 acres of surrounding land were purchased by Samuel F.B. Morse in partnership with a number of other investors. This established the Del Monte Properties Company, which eventually became the Pebble Beach Company. The hotel was renovated and updated, and Morse developed the surrounding area as a sports and leisure complex, including, of course, golf courses. Yeah, there was already a golf course, and then he added to that. And now, of course, Pebble Beach is known for its golf courses. Uh, In 1924, the sprawling Victorian hotel burned down, and it was rebuilt, but this time in Spanish Revival style. When Hotel Del Monte reopened two years later, more than 3,000 people were on hand to celebrate. 
After Steinbeck's time living in Monterey, the hotel was requisitioned by the Navy as a school center to, uh, to train people, and then the Navy bought it in 1947, and today it serves as the main building for the Navy's postgraduate school, and it operates under the name Herman Hall. We're about to talk about the industry that gave the area its name, but before we dig into that, let's take another quick sponsor break. Of course, Cannery Row is named for canneries, but the Monterey area didn't actually see its first cannery until 1902. There's a lot of fishing going on there, but not canning. And it wasn't even on the stretch, (laughs) that first one that would become Cannery Row. Up to that point, the fishing industry had been dominated by the Chinese fishermen who dried fish and shipped it away, or as we said, sold it to markets in San Francisco. But as competitors grew in number, the nature of Monterey's fishing business changed. The first cannery was opened by a man named Frank E. Booth. Booth had been doing business in Monterey since the 1890s. He was president of the Sacramento River Packers Association. He would make the journey down to Monterey and have salmon shipped to his packing facilities, but he soon realized it would make a lot more sense to just open the cannery right there in Monterey. He tried twice with mediocre results to open canning facilities there. First with a small packing shed that folded because he had a hard time getting contracts with fishermen who already had their own deals with San Francisco businesses. He made another stab at a cannery in 1901, but there was competition this time in the form of a small cannery with a smokehouse that had been opened by a man named H.R. Robbins. And then in 1902, Booth's operation was destroyed by a fire. Robbins was also struggling financially at this point, not from fire, but just from other issues. So Booth bought out Robbins and expanded his smoking and canning operation considerably. That same year, Japanese immigrant Otosaburo Noda also opened a cannery called Monterey Fishing and Canning Company. Noda had an American partner in the cannery named Henry Malpas. But even before the cannery, Noda had a keen insight about the potential for the area. He had started working there as a lumberjack for the Pacific Improvement Company, but he soon started a fishing colony in Monterey with more than five dozen other Japanese men. While they fished for abalone, their real focus was salmon. Yeah, we had mentioned the Pacific Improvement Company before. They were basically the correlated company that worked with the Southern Pacific Railroad to handle property and construction and whatnot. So they really were an incredibly powerful company within uh, the Monterey area. Prior to this, to uh, the Japanese focus on salmon fishing, there had been a belief that salmon were fairly fished out in Monterey Bay. The catch that people were able to bring in of salmon had fallen off considerably. But Noda and the Japanese fishermen used different techniques and fishing gear evolved. And by the end of the first decade of the 20th century, there were 185 salmon boats counted in Monterey Bay. And more than three quarters of those were owned by Japanese fishermen who were doing very well. So this is a lot of salmon talk, which may be a little puzzling if you know that Cannery Row is famous for its sardines. But before World War I, most of the salmon caught in Monterey Bay was shipped to Europe, specifically Germany, and most of the sardines that made it to tables in the Bay Area came from France. But the onset of war disrupted all those shipping routes, of course, so things started to shift for the businesses along Ocean View Avenue. There was demand for sardines in the area, and during World War I, the cannery business at Monterey Bay grew immensely. More than half a dozen new canning facilities sprang up. 
And this is the time when Sicilian fishermen really innovated and set the stage for Ocean View Avenue to eventually become known, which did not happen until World War II, as the sardine capital of the world. That name we should mention is not really accurate, though, uh, as many towns that name themselves will do. They don't always really have the facts behind them. Norway is the winner there. Um, But the Sicilian fishermen did bring a new way to catch fish with them. They first used an open-style boat and net that they had brought from the Mediterranean and used the fishing techniques from there. And then in the late 1920s, purse-signed ships were brought into the area, and that significantly increased the catch that fishermen were able to bring in. This method involves a huge, huge net that's deployed in a circle around a school of fish with a circumference as big as a quarter mile. The net's bottom is also very deep, as deep as 200 feet. And after it's corralled all these fish into one location, the net would be pulled in tight like a drawstring purse, and then all the fish would be trapped in there, and all of it scooped just right into a ship. This type of fishing is still done today in some places, and it's pretty problematic. One, it is an indiscriminate way to catch fish. Everything in the area gets caught, regardless of whether it's the kind of fish you are actually fishing for. Two, it leads to overfishing, which ultimately collapsed the industry as the bay was depleted. Yeah, uh, there are plenty of videos you can watch that are very sad about purse sign fishing today. Just know if you want to see how it's done, you have to very carefully navigate those waters uh, online. But the sardines from Monterey Bay are not the same as the ones from the North Atlantic. They are much larger, almost twice the size, and they have a higher oil content. They actually had to be called a different thing to be exported because they were not considered sardines by everybody. Uh, And a lot of them, a lot of them, as many as two-thirds at a time, were never intended for food usage, but for a process called reduction. That is a process where they are ground down and made into fish meal and fertilizer. And we're going to come back to reduction in just a moment because it had a significant impact on the life of Monterey and also had some lasting implications. On September 14, 1924, a terrible fire started when lightning struck two oil tanks that were owned by Associated Oil Company. This could have easily destroyed all of Ocean View Avenue and its cannery industry, and it nearly did. Several buildings and two canneries went up in flames. Two soldiers from the Presidio died fighting the fire. Thanks only to random luck of the wind changing direction, the rest of Ocean View Avenue and the neighborhood were spared. This was, incidentally, less than two weeks before the fire that destroyed the Hotel Del Monte, although the two fires were unrelated. What a thing for a community, though, to have, like, those two fires so close together. You have to feel like you live on bad luck lane at that point, I think. Uh, During the Depression which, of course, deeply impacted the entire country significantly, the decision was made that the industry in Monterey was going to prioritize reduction rather than canning because it was making more money doing that than selling sardines as edibles. And this meant that the fishermen and the cannery workers of Monterey were able to make it through this difficult time for the most part, which is great, but this was a short-sighted solution because the purse-signed fishing was ramped up to keep the Monterey economy afloat, which meant the bay was very much overfished, although it was not yet quite depleted. But World War II saw a continuation of overfishing, though this time because people needed the sardines for food. 
There were heated debates about what was happening and warnings that were issued by the science community, but business interest won out and the fishing and the canning continued. There's this um, bit of irony to the timing of Steinbeck's book that made this area famous. So Cannery Row made this strip of Ocean View something of a, a household name and led to it actually being renamed Cannery Row in 1958. But this was happening as the industry that led to that nickname was completely caving in. The last half of the 1940s saw progressively weaker and weaker numbers in terms of catch. It's kind of like a depressing, I looked at one table of like the poundage of catch they were taking in every day. And as it depletes, it's just a completely depressing line. Uh, And there were some canneries that had this idea that they could like keep it going a little bit by having fish shipped into their facilities that they would then can and ship back out. But that was not a long-term solution. And over time, Cannery Row sort of became a ghost town as one business after another went under and it left all of these canneries and warehouses just empty. The late 1950s and early 1960s brought yet another wave of change. Slowly, daring restaurateurs moved into the area hoping to draw tourists to the ocean side, and it started the tourism rebuild of Cannery Row. The Monterey Bay Aquarium opened in 1984, and its footprint covered the site of the former Hovden Cannery as well as the Chinese fishing village that started the fishing industry in Monterey. Over time, the remaining warehouses have been repurposed and renovated, filled with things like shops and restaurants and art galleries. Today when you go, it's kind of like um, what you would expect in a, a really charming seaside tourist town. Like the aquarium is is a huge draw, of course, and it's a really, really fantastic facility. But then it is. It's like a lot of, you know, shops and the kind of like cute stuff you would find in a seaside town. Um, that beach where they initially moved the Chinese fishing village has a little memorial wall there uh, with a carving of fishermen on it, but there's nothing else there. People, like, launch their kayaks and stuff out of there. Uh, It's just a really lovely place to visit, but it's one of those places where if you really look around, a lot of the buildings still have, like, old labels on them, and you can realize, like, that this is rebuilt into something that had gone almost dormant for a while, which is kind of a fascinating aspect of it. Um, I love Monterey and clearly need to go back as quickly as possible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it's a really beautiful place uh, and you can go do fun things at the aquarium. Last time I went, I accidentally stumbled into with my dear friend a night where they were doing like an after hours event at the aquarium where they had all this amazing like ticket tasting food where you would like spend $20 and get five tickets and then you could go around from table to table and try Mm -hmm. interesting little, oh, it was heaven. I was like, we stumbled into the best night of our lives. Uh, So that was fabulous. Thank you, Monterey Bay Aquarium. Also, they're doing a lot about conservation and uh, sustainable seafood, which is always important. Yeah, it's, I was just thinking as, as, I have no idea if there is a correlation between the Monterey Bay Aquarium's focus on sustainable seafood and the history of Monterey. And there 100% Lonsing. is. Yeah? <laughs> yes. You know the answer. Uh, I like how I was just sort of sitting here like, I wonder if that's related. Not a mistake. Um, I mean, they're very aware that, uh, you know, they're there in effect because overfishing really just bottomed out that that entire industry there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we should point out that the aquarium's position does not cover the entirety of where that Chinese fishing village once stood. The main location of that village is now the site of the Stanford Hopkins Marine Station. 
and it, it there are different um, f- sort of like factoids and studies you can read about fish coming back and what that is. But there are also some that are like, it's never recovered and it will never recover. Mm-hmm. There was just too, too much depletion for any of those like fish communities to really, really regain um, any kind of like permanence in that area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's Cannery Row and Monterey, which I love. If you get a chance and you have not been, highly recommend it. It's <laughs> awfully fun. It's also just a beautiful drive if you're in San Francisco for a trip for a vacation and you want to drive out to Monterey. It's a really pretty drive. I'm I'm clearly a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> I have two pieces of listener mail. I was about to ask. One sort of involves sea life. Um, it mostly just made me chuckle. Uh, it's from our listener, Ariel, and she said, I've really been enjoying your podcast in the last year or so. I greatly appreciate the number of episodes about cool women and minorities I am disappointed to have not learned about before. I wanted to email to tell you about two things. In an online trivia game, we were asked about the Anglo-Zanzibar War and how many hours it lasted. I knew the answer was less than one hour because of your podcast and was filled with a great sense of probably undeserved pride. It's weirdly fulfilling to know the answer to a random trivia question. Yes, it is. Uh, Two, I enjoyed the recent episode about Catherine the Great, and I thought you would enjoy a picture by Catherine Miller Art of Queen Catherine the Great White Shark. She uses animal puns to create gorgeous and fun art. It is an absolutely marvelous piece of work. It makes me chuckle, and it's just beautifully done. Uh, Now I want to go explore Catherine Miller's available prints and get myself into all kinds of trouble. Uh, Thank you so much, Ariel, for introducing me to a new problem in a good way. (laughs) Our our second piece of listener mail today is from our listener, Anne Marie. Uh, This is another one that touches on our emergency medicine two-parter, and she says, Hi, ladies. I work at Innova Alexandria Hospital, and there is a big history section in the visitor entrance to the hospital. Because we've been around for so long, since 1872, there is a lot of interesting history to share, so I thought I would send a few photos I took. Please let me know if any of these don't show up properly. So um, there's, like, some beautiful stained glass that memorializes the founding of it. And uh, what was really, really interesting is that it there is discussion of the Alexandria plan, which was that initial plan to develop permanent emergency room doctor programs rather than just having people rotate in from other uh, divisions of the hospital to cover emergency care, uh, which is pretty cool. So she works in a, a place that completely changed the way we look at medicine today, uh, which is amazing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And we would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.